This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we explore a new report on global climate change that suggests extreme climate events will become more frequent and more severe. Plus, as students prepare to head back to the classroom, we check in with two teachers about how their schools are handling COVID-19 precautions. You can look at someone and see if they're wearing their mask properly, but you cannot look at someone and see if they are vaccinated or not. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, is a global body of the United Nations created to provide the world with information about man-made climate change. The IPCC's first report on the subject came out more than 30 years ago. On Monday, the group released its sixth assessment documenting the physical science behind climate change. The highly anticipated report is the product of years of work on the issue by hundreds of scientists from all over the world. The report documents an increase in extreme climate events due to rising global temperatures. It also definitively identifies human activity, in particular the burning of fossil fuels that emit carbon, as the cause of those increasing temperatures. Linda Mearns is a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder and the lead author of the report. She's here today to walk us through what this international news means for northern Colorado. Linda, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks very much, Henry. Very glad to be here. Let's start with the top line findings from this report. What are the key takeaways to be thinking about here? We're warming even more quickly than we thought. If you go back to the fifth assessment report, we're actually warming more quickly than we thought. And so, for example, we're now at a state where there's greater than a 50% chance that the 1.5 degree C level of warming will be crossed in the early 2030s. And that's very important because it tells us that we have less time to try to adapt and mitigate this problem than we thought we had even just a couple of years ago. Another key element of the report that I think is somewhat new is the importance of compound extreme events. Now, we all know that extreme events are very important in terms of their impacts, for example, heat waves. We also have in a lot of the Western US droughts going on, and these have been going on for a number of years. And finally, as we're also very aware, uh, we've had a great number of fires and there's indication that fire weather extremes will increase in the future. So what this means is that for the Western US, which would certainly include Northern Colorado, we're going to be faced with three different extremes likely happening at the same time, and that is extreme heat, drought, and higher fire weather. Beyond these sort of warm weather, I I guess, impacts, what other impacts might we see here in Colorado? There will be continued changes in snow cover. Snow cover will be reduced. The amount of snow will be reduced, and this will affect many mountain ecosystems. It will affect our water resources. It will affect our recreation systems, for example, ski facilities. And so the diminution of snow will be a very important factor here. Colorado is actually in kind of an interesting position in terms of changes in 
precipitation. Precipitation will largely be increasing further north of us. And then below us, for example, in the southwest, precipitation will be decreasing, uh, particularly in the summer. But Colorado is in this kind of medium area where there's a lot of uncertainty about how precipitation will change. Be that as it may, we know temperatures will increase, which means that evapotranspiration will increase. And so Colorado will be getting drier. And that is bad news for many systems, agriculture, water resources in general. And so the climate changes we're gonna see in Colorado are also going to require adaptation and will be hard to manage. Do you think that means that we are heading towards the end of life on the Front Range? I mean, do you expect to see communities that cannot adapt adequately to these conditions? And might that reshape the world we live in? I think there will be failures to adapt. So I I think unless we really get our act together, both in terms of adaptation and mitigation, uh, we're going to have some real problems. We are probably going to have more deaths, uh, certainly more wildfires that will destroy property, if not cause more deaths. And it's partially because there isn't a unified perception in the U.S. that these are all caused by climate change and that they're going to get worse. But I think, sadly, what will happen is conditions will continue to get worse and more people will simply have to realize that serious adaptation is really important. There are some simple adaptations that can be done before it gets a lot more serious. Now, agriculture may be more of a problem because some of the crops, at least in Colorado, are irrigated. So there may be a requirement eventually over time, we may have to change the types of crops that are being grown. So I think there's a lot of room for there to still be adaptation, but we just see a lot of signs in other parts of the US. Let's take the fact that for the first time in California, farmers have been somewhat restricted in terms of the water available to them for irrigation. And I think those kinds of situations will become more common. Let's also go back to fire. If we see another year, let's say if next year is as bad as this year and the year before in terms of fire weather, I think people will certainly get a much clearer message This is that this is a new regime. Do you think there is anything to be hopeful about with all of this? Well, a good colleague of mine, we were discussing a project on a Zoom call, of course, and she's situated in the Northwest, and she was complaining about the heat. And I said something to her, yes, but you've been studying the heat for a long time. And she said, yes, but studying it is very different from experiencing it. And I I think that's a very important perspective. It's a sad situation. And in my more desperate moments about this, and I'm not exactly speaking as an IPCC scientist when I say this, but sometimes I fear that, that the world will not get its act together about this until virtually every person has been personally affected and damaged by an extreme event. Of course, by the time that happens, 
if that ever happens, it'll be too late. Where do things go from here? What happens next now that, you know, relevant stakeholders and the powers that be have seen this report? What happens now? Well, I must say, I mean, there's been a great deal more media attention on this report than uh, there have been in earlier reports. And I've been involved in all the reports since the second one in 1995. So I kind of have a long longitudinal perspective on this. And there's something very different about this, the response to it. It's much more intense, I think, from the media, and hopefully it will be from the the public as well. And also, luckily, we now have an administration where the problem is being taken seriously again. And you may say, well, he's still not doing enough, but he's doing more than any other president has ever done before. And I find that heartening. And as I said, I I found the press interest very heartening. And if you look at the polls of people in the United States, do they believe that climate change is a problem and that we caused it? The majority do. So there's really been significant changes in the way we look at this. And that I find hopeful. I'm also hopeful because the IPCC itself has changed and it's become much more aware of it as not just interesting science, but a global problem that is threatening all of life on earth. And I think that more integrated problem-oriented perspective is a, an important change in the conceptual frame of the IPCC. Linda Mearns is a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder and a lead author of the new Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report. Linda, thanks for talking with us. It's my pleasure. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The old adage, the show must go on, is getting a rebrand in light of current events. In the aftermath of the Me Too movement and a long period of self-reflection during the pandemic, artists and arts groups are changing how they work to keep performers safe. KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick has more. Amanda Wilson knew that life in the theater might mean dealing with a few metaphorical wolves, but she didn't know it would mean sharing the stage with literal coyotes. We discovered pretty early on that there was a family of coyotes. Super harmless, you know, but but definitely not something that you want to encounter at dusk by yourself. The co-founder and artistic director of Boulder Theater Troupe The Catamounts was staging a production of the show The Rough on a golf course. It was part of a site-specific experience in line with their motto, Theater for an Adventurous Palette. We really want to be able to push boundaries, but we recognize that in doing so, a lot of times we're asking actors and crew and designers to work in circumstances that they don't necessarily have a lot of experience. Some weren't entirely comfortable being stationed along the course alone. Wilson was able to find a way to make sure actors felt safe thanks to the organization's adoption of the Community Standards for Theater. Based on the Chicago theater standards created more than a decade ago as part of the Not in Our House movement, 
CST addresses things like basic safety, sexual harassment, and diversity and accessibility inclusion. One of the biggest things that we advocate for is just transparency and clear communication at every step of the process. Removing the ambiguity that makes people feel unsafe. That's Amanda Rose Villarreal. She's the co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Artist Safety Alliance, which created the CST. She's also a faculty member for theatrical intimacy education at the University of Colorado Boulder. If I'm going into a space and I don't know what I'm going to be asked to do, and the director can just add anything at any point in time and say, oh, now this scene is in the nude, that makes me feel very unsafe. The idea that artists and theater crews should be able to advocate for themselves when they don't feel safe is actually a huge cultural shift. And it's one Villarreal says not everyone has embraced. In this work, we've seen quite a bit of people being reticent to look at new practices because looking at new practices acknowledges that something's wrong and that makes people uncomfortable. The Catamounts has been using CST for years, but for some artists, the year and a half spent figuring out how to create work in a pandemic has also given them time to think about how to make that work safer and more equitable. When COVID broke out, it was just like a sign that we needed to do it. You know, there's no, there's no one's looking out for us. Aiden Pagnani is a longtime Denver musician and the co-founder of the Denver Musicians Union. The organization began in the midst of the pandemic, but the issues it addresses have been around for a while. I know a lot of people had to move home who are still screwed over from those first few months. And, you know, I think what the pandemic did was just give us time to organize. I mean, we really had a lot of, we weren't doing anything. We were losing money every day, but still it was like, we got to do something. The first step was to ask area musicians to commit to a demand that venues pay them a minimum of $100 per night per band member. What Pagnani says is the absolute minimum a musician needs to make a living in Denver. It was a small step, but it led to a larger conversation about the overall treatment of musicians. The union later organized a boycott of venues owned by or associated with concert booker Jay Bianchi. Multiple artists have accused Bianchi of harassment and sexual assault. Bianchi has denied the allegations. This is just our, our response and our way of creating accountability culture. Sarah Mount is a musician and another union co-founder. She says efforts to call out abusive behavior are a long time coming. Even if it's more closed doors, we are making moves that are basically um, just our actions to show people that we're not going to put up with this anymore. Because for years, artists have put up with a lot. Lousy pay, abusive conditions. It's almost an expectation that being an artist is inherently tied to the idea of struggle, according to Andrew Knight. They're trying to do something for a profession that the rest of the people in the world <laughs> are supposed to be doing on uh, Saturday for fun, you know, get together and sing with a friend or go to a, go, go to a painting night. Knight is an associate professor of music therapy at Colorado State University. He also teaches the course, The Artist's Guide to Wellness. The class works to change that perception, teaching young artists to advocate for their own financial, physical, and mental health. They also analyze things students can do now, like how a musician protecting their posture at age 20 will pay off when they're still playing at 40, and how understanding variable income as a student 
will help them budget better as a professional. You just got cast for this big show. It's going to be a six-week run, and so you get your payment and everything, but then you don't have another gig lined up for afterwards, or the show ends early. It was supposed to be a six-week run. It ended up being a two-week run. It's a show that crashed, and as an actor or a director or a stage designer, whatever it might be in the theatrical arts, you've got to figure out, like, okay, well, while I'm looking for the next four weeks, did I kind of space out that variable income so that it'll work? Still, no matter how much preparation, you just never know what's around the corner. Like a global pandemic that wipes out your entire season. Or coyotes roaming around your set. Again, Catamount's artistic director, Amanda Wilson. On the other end, I have felt disempowered as an actor often. And not wanting to ruffle feathers, wanting to make sure that I was being a good hire, you know, but I've also felt disempowered. Like I didn't have the space to sort of be like, I'm not sure that that feels safe and not just physically safe, but sometimes kind of emotionally safe too. So in the case of those coyotes, the theater took a page from the community theater standards. The solution, a coyote babysitter was implemented to be on the lookout and stay with cast members who were stationed alone on the golf course. An odd casting choice? Maybe. But Wilson says it was worth it. I, mean, I just think that on some level, it's tied to our mission, which is like, if we're going to push boundaries, we need to be able to do so safely. So the show can indeed go on. Stacy Nick, KUNC. across Colorado are returning to classrooms this month for the new school year. They are finding a wide variety of safety precautions against COVID-19 when they get there. Some districts are mandating masks for students, teachers, and visitors, and requiring staff to be vaccinated. Others have no mask or vaccine policies in place and are going back to business as usual. We're talking today with teachers in two different school districts that are approaching COVID-19 in very different ways. Carrie Fox is a seventh grade math teacher at Academy District 20 in Colorado Springs. She's also the president of the Academy Education Association. Christina Medina is a second grade teacher who teaches in Spanish at McGlone Academy in the Denver Public Schools District. Christina and Carrie, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, Christina, maybe let's start with you. What kinds of COVID-19 policies are in place at your school now? Starting um, yesterday, all students and staff, visitors as well, will need to be masked. And by September 30th, it's expected that all Denver Public School employees are fully vaccinated. Well, Carrie, let's turn to hear from you. How are things down there in the Springs? It's very different. I'm, I'm kind of shocked. We do not have a mask mandate. We do not have a vaccination requirement. Our extra hand sanitation stations have been returned. We're basically going back as usual, which shocks me. It's very, very different from last year. Tell us a little more about the precautions that your district or your school took last year that aren't in place now. My school was pretty strict. We had cohorts My normal class of 32 was split in half, so I would have about 15, 17 kids in the classroom at a time. Class sizes are a little smaller this year. I have 25 in my largest class. 
and 17 in my smallest, which is great, but I don't think it has to do with COVID precautions. It's just the kids that were enrolled. We met out in front of the school and walked the kids in by cohort. Each grade level had a different door that we went in. We all wore masks. We would switch classes every three weeks and had hybrid all year long. And and I think we've gotten very fatigued by doing it that way. It's just very, very different. Was this what you were anticipating in terms of school COVID guidance throughout the summer? I know a lot of teachers and school officials and even public health officials were kind of just in a wait and see mode, but is this what you are anticipating? I thought for sure masks would be required like as a basic minimum. And they are required on buses because that was a federal mandate. Our district is choosing to do only what El Paso County Public Health has mandated and none of their recommendations. And I was surprised, yeah. Do you feel comfortable going back to school and starting the school year? And I guess after Carrie, Christina, same question to you. I'm feeling fairly comfortable My personal choice was to be vaccinated. My family has been vaccinated except for my youngest who is too young. My concern is mostly for students that have not been vaccinated yet or do not have the opportunity to be vaccinated and what it's going to do to our community. I know El Paso County Public Health has said that our county has a lower vaccination rate I am expecting numbers to go up in the community when school is in session. For me, I do feel relatively safe to go back. I haven't heard of any social distancing measures that will be in place, but definitely wearing the masks and having our staff vaccinated is making me feel safer going back. I too am vaccinated and everyone in my family, except for my niece and nephew who are too young, And my students, of course, will not be vaccinated. And that's where I'm just happy that DPS made the decision that masks will be required indoors. They're not required outdoors. But yeah, I think it was a rough, you know, (laughs) year last year being remote and in person. My classroom personally did not have to quarantine. So that was good. But I, I, I just, I guess I wonder how things will be without social distancing. To the both of you, what do you think is the biggest challenge that you are going to face or your students are going to face in this new school year? I feel like we're treating this as though COVID has disappeared. And I think the biggest challenge is going to be that Delta variant and breakthrough cases. I think we all want our students to be happy and healthy and safe when they go to school. And it's so different how we are approaching this as a society. And it's just so polarizing. And I think the actual polarization of this issue is going to be the most difficult part to manage. I'm going to agree with Carrie on everything she just shared, I think. The Delta variant presents as something that's um, concerning. You know, we've seen how children are contracting it because they're, they can't be vaccinated yet. I think, you know, I don't want to say mask fatigue. I think that can be an issue for a lot of classrooms, but 
I think when we explain and we show the science behind wearing masks, children understand it. I know this, I taught summer school and um, we had to wear masks and, you know, they, it, it's hot. The AC wasn't working one of the days and kids, you know, didn't want to wear their mask. And we had a, a special mask that we would use for phonics instruction and they got to see their droplets compiling and they're like, oh my gosh, that's gross. And I'm like, and that's what you spread when you don't wear your mask. So after that, they were all really good about wearing their masks. And I think that's something that I can continue in my classroom. And I hope other teachers would as well. Personally, I'm pro-mask and pro-vaccination. And so the fact that Denver Public Schools is following through with that makes me feel safer. And and I'm going to agree with you. I'm actually shocked that we aren't requiring masks in El Paso County only because it's just logistically so much easier to look at a classroom. You can look at someone and see if they're wearing their mask properly, but you cannot look at someone and see if they are vaccinated or not. I'm going to be wearing a mask when my students arrive. Christina and Carrie, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we explore the world of sports psychology with a look at mental health and the unique pressures athletes often face. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 